Today's podcast is brought to you by Happy Life Herbals. If you're like me and are curious about the benefits of CBD and you haven't tried them before, head over to happylifeherbals.com and take a look at their products. CBD has been reported to potentially relieve symptoms of anxiety as well as other chronic pain. Check with your doctor to see if CBD may be right for you. And then head on over to happylifeherbals.com. If you choose one of their products and use the word suburban, that's S-U-B-U-R-B-A-N at checkout, the Suburban Folk Podcast will receive a small portion of your purchase, which helps support the show so we can bring you more content. Also, if you have a podcast or are thinking about starting a podcast, reach out to me at greg at suburbanfolk.com to discuss how I can help you with editing, production, music, or whatever is standing in your way from getting your voice heard. Again, that's greg at suburbanfolk.com. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. Today's episode will center around the gig economy or creating a side hustle. You may think of being an Uber driver or delivering for Grubhub, but there are other opportunities. Specifically, we'll focus on being a virtual assistant. The first step in becoming a virtual assistant is taking inventory of all of your skills and figuring out which ones you might be able to monetize. With mounting economic uncertainty, now's a great time to figure out how you can generate additional sources of income. Joining me today is Gina Horky. She's the founder of Horky Handbook, and she loves helping others become virtual assistants. Her background includes making a living as a professional writer, an online business marketing consultant, and she has a decade of experience in the financial services industry. Thanks, Gina, so much for taking the time to join us today. How are you? I'm good. It's fine in Minnesota, so that's always a fun part of the year. (laughs) And, of course, the times that we're in right now, how are you faring with all the current lockdown that's going on? You know, it's not a ton different for our family. Uh, My husband quit his job in 2013 to become a stay-at-home dad, and our kids are six and eight now. Um, So the difference is that normally they'd be in school. We actually go to Texas and the southern part for a couple months each year, and this all happened in the perfect timing that the day we got home, they were supposed to return to school, and they just didn't. So we had an extended homeschool year for them. So your husband's probably laughing at all the stories of people that are struggling to get used to handling their kids while they're doing all the other work. He's an old pro at it. Exactly. He's been forwarding me the memes and all of the good stuff, which is funny because he wasn't on the Facebook until like six months ago. I was convincing (laughs) him he could help me with some of these communities for our business. And I think he's enjoying it a little too much, but don't tell him that I told you that. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Make it put in the time. (laughs) Well, do you want to go ahead and get us started by telling us your background? How did you first come into the world of virtual assistance and then ultimately starting your own business? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I am a little bit of a type A overachiever. I uh, I like to do things early and go hard, I guess. Um, I went to college, for example, when I was just 16. I moved out of my house and went to college full time as a junior in high school because 
the state of Minnesota would pay for it. And uh, that was a, a big deal because we grew up a little bit poor. And then I started a career in personal finance when I was just 21. And so I had almost a decade in financial services before I quit my job and left it behind for this wonderful world of online business. But the fun part, I think, is that I started right before the Great Recession. So um, if you've been around a little while, or if you look back historically, you'll see that every decade or so, we go through some sort of economic downturn, financial crisis, and we're in that position again. But I started my career in finance in 2005, 2006, and guess what happened just a couple of years later in 2008? We had the Great Recession. So it was an interesting time to say the least. It was a great time of perspective as somebody new to building a career and a business. And I was able to pivot kind of with the goal of wanting to also start a family. And so I joined a smaller uh, financial practice that was closer to my home and I became part uh, financial advisor and part support person for this wonderful, small family run, but very profitable practice. And that happened in 2009. And I worked with them for five or six years. And then I just, I got this itch that there was more to kind of what I was capable of and what I was kind of drawn to from a career standpoint than what I was doing. And so I had a pleasant working experience there. I just didn't see the next 30 years of my life doing that same thing day in, day out, my own form of a Groundhog's Day, right? So <laughs> right. I got to Googling, which many people do, and I came across freelance writing for the web um, on April 15th of 2014, and I launched HorkyHandbook.com just a month later in May of that same year. And the only reason I launched a website is because I was drawn into freelance writing. I didn't have a journal journalism background, but I liked to write. I knew I was a clear and concise communicator via text. And I knew that I needed some samples. If I wanted clients to hire me to do some writing, then I needed to prove that I had writing chops. And so I went the route of starting a website and I wrote some articles that were samples for my portfolio so I could direct potential clients back there. And it worked. I landed my first few clients and I started making money and uh, continued to grow month after month. And then it was September of that year that I landed my first kind of virtual assistant client. And I just came across like an online entrepreneur that seemed to have trouble keeping up with his inbox and customer service is kind of an important part of business. And so I just said, hey, like it looks like you might have a need here. This is something I feel fully confident that I could take on and kick some butt for you would you like to hire me? And he said, yes. And that was a tipping point because I was the breadwinner. You know, I mentioned my husband quit his job in 2013. And so it was all on my shoulders to bring home the bacon. And, and so it was a big deal for me to go from starting this side hustle and piecing together writing gigs to getting kind of this first reoccurring client. And that's when I had this nice conversation with the office I worked as a part of. And we put a plan in place for me to kind of retire with them at the end of the year and go at this full time in 2015. Some of the things that you walk through in your journey seems to me to be some of the highlights of being able to be in the virtual business. One, developing a skill in this case, writing and having that as something that you can uh, show off. And then two, just being able to do different things. So if it's somebody that wants to be a jack of all trades, you've got that ability to do that. And then actually even a third, 
dip your toe in the water while you were maintaining your day job to figure out what that was going to look like for you. And not all business models are going to lend itself to that. No, I think that is the safest way to start an online business. If you need a full-time job or if you have one already in your family or your own personal situation is dependent on that is you don't know what's going to happen, right? So you might as well safely start it by waking up a little bit earlier or staying up a little later or carving out some time on the weekend to start putting yourself out there for whatever service you're going to offer, finding clients, doing client work and actually earning money. And then, uh, you know, I did it where I maximized all of my quote unquote free time um, I started my business when I had a 10-month-old and a 29-month-old. They're 19 months apart, so he was like two and a half. So I didn't have a lot of ample free time. I would literally get up at 4 or 4.30 in the morning to carve out two hours to work on my business before I had to nurse the baby, jump in the shower, and go to my day job. So again, I, I like to do things maybe to a little bit of an extreme, but I have this strong desire for having my own business and being the boss and really getting paid based on what I was putting into it. And that's not always the case in corporate America, at least from what I found. Now, I think that most people would agree with that perspective that you may not necessarily uh, see the returns based on the effort that you're putting in and sometimes vice versa, which if you are a go-getter, <laughs> if you have a team member that's not pulling their weight, that's going to really feel like it's dragging you down as well. And the other point I think to take from that is you can always find an excuse not to do something. So whatever happens to be going on in life, okay, I'll do this six months later. I'll do it however long later when this thing happens. But things can and will always come up. So the cliche of there's never a perfect time, I think, really fits a lot of scenarios and certainly would fit a scenario as far as looking to start your own business and just getting started is probably a big part of the first step. And I also imagine with your personal finance background, you probably were pretty meticulous with just running the numbers, not only, hey, what can I do with my day job and then maximizing those off hours, but even probably the math of if I'm really going to do this full time, here's my family's budget, here's what we can do three months, six months, so on down the line so that you've got the plan and you hopefully have some sense of safety. Yeah. And that's what motivated me to tell you the truth is I broke it down and I needed to earn $5,000 a month. We had cut everything possible when my husband quit his job so that we um, could have one of us be at home with the baby, right? Or with our two children at that time. And so we were pretty lean in the way that we led our lives anyways, which was super helpful to wanting to do something different. It's just hilarious to me that we went through this huge life change. And we always thought that we had to be a dual income household couple and have kids in daycare and it never set right with us. But that's what a message that like society had kind of sold to us. And then we figured out there was a different way. And then the same thing, I felt like I was stuck in that job even though I had really great kind of coworkers, it wasn't something that was filling my bucket and that I felt like this drive to kind of excel at. And I thought for a while, though, that I was stuck because I had chosen this job. I had you know clients that depended on me. I had marketed for almost 10 years that this is what I was doing. And so for me to change my mind felt a little bit like failure. And then it was risky, too. So... Um, I didn't let it hold me back, though. You're right. There's not a perfect time. Tomorrow never comes. I mean, my mantra personally what is, at the time is, why not me? Why not now? And I like to flip that around to my students and say, why not you? Like, why can't you do this? And why can't it be right now? 
Yeah. And I think that's something that people just need to remind themselves and yeah, keep it as a mantra. <laughs> Each day, challenge yourself as to, are you really making up an excuse or or can you actually you know move forward with whatever it is that you're looking to do, especially if you feel like you're stuck in a rut, whether that's a corporate job rut or otherwise, or just need extra income that um, will make you feel safer in your day-to-day life. So we mentioned uh, writing gigs being one of the examples for somebody that's doing virtual work. What are other examples that somebody could be looking for and skills that they could offer as a virtual assistant? Yeah, it's a great question. And before we dive into the rest, I wanted to share with you guys that um, my path was not like this straight up line of success. I had plenty of rejections and setbacks and all of the things, but I had a strong why that I wanted to accomplish. And then I had some perseverance of like just continuing to put in the hustle or the grind. So just to kind of maybe bring some humor to all of this. Um, as I said, I wasn't like a journalist by trade. And the first couple of gigs that I got, the very first one was writing gluten-free couponing articles. It was ghostwriting it for a blogger. And it was two of them. I think I got paid 40 whole dollars and I was not gluten-free and I was not a couponer. But I have this figure it out type of mentality. And maybe that was kind of how I was raised that I, it was up to me to figure it out, right? The second kind of writing gig was um, I had a, a writing mentor that had subcontracted me out some work and I was writing WordPress theme descriptions. Now I had launched that website and it was on WordPress, but I had no idea what a theme was. And so I just knew that I could figure it out. And I learned a lot from both of those experiences. And I got paid $7.50 per 150 word theme description that I wrote. Like, it's funny how things just stick with you, right? They were very kind of monumental shifts. It was proof that what I was doing would yield pay, even if it wasn't a lot at first. So writing was where I got my start. Um, Some people don't enjoy that medium. It's just not for them. Um, As I mentioned, the second thing that I did was email management and customer service. If you are an entrepreneur or a small business owner and you're still doing your own customer service, you are doing a disservice to your own business. You need somebody in on the front lines to be able to just kind of protect your time. And, you know, they're going to give you feedback, good and bad, of what's going on with your business. So don't feel like you're going to miss out on that. But that's a great opportunity for somebody to break break into services. Um, There's everything from virtual bookkeeping to doing podcast production to, of course, social media management, um, PR and outreach. Um, Let's see, what else? Graphic design is huge. Everybody wants their websites to look pretty and to have, you know, nice looking uh, PDF opt-ins so that they can entice uh, readers to come and opt into their email list. And and email marketing is a whole nother game. And, and that can include writing skills as well. For most of those skills and the picture that you're painting, these aren't necessarily all skills that you've got to bring to the table when you're starting. Actually, when you're telling the story about WordPress themes, I can relate very much. I did a blog for a very short time a number of years ago, knew nothing about WordPress. Once I figured it out and built my website, I started scouring at the time Craigslist to see if people were needing help building their websites. And I grabbed a couple of those. I don't They paid me maybe a couple hundred bucks or, or so uh, to get that done. And, and there is almost even a fun sense of challenge when you do run into something you had known nothing about before. So in my example, 
somebody had built this website and they built this flash graphic. I knew nothing about flash <laughs> in, in, in any way. So I had to completely deconstruct what they had created, make sure that it fit into the theme that they had. They had a bunch of different cart uh, add-ins that you can have. So I had to pull all those back out, get them reinstalled and so on. And yeah, eventually I figured it out and hey, there's a new skill. And oh, by the way, it makes for fun stories. And how much more did you learn about business because of that? Because you had that client relationship and interaction, right? But then you also learned kind of how he was trying to do his business and what wasn't working for him and then what you needed to fix in order to streamline that so that he could do more business. If you consider yourself like somebody that's eager to learn new things, um, even if you don't, if you can kind of force yourself into that mindset, it'll help take you a long way. The other thing that you mentioned is that you don't need to know it all. That's 100% true. It's probably best if you take what's called a skills inventory um, of what you do know how to do. And you can just take a few minutes to think about all of the past jobs that you've had and what types of things that you did on a daily basis, which things were kind of recurring in nature, meaning you did them either day in, day out, week in, week out, or more project-based and just take some time to write them down. And then we have like lists available for free download as well. So you can literally go and highlight all the things you know how to do and maybe use a different color highlighter to figure out, okay, these are things I don't know how to do, but they sound kind of interesting. Because we live in this super unique time that um, not only can you get paid to do work that you actually enjoy, but you kind of also get to choose the types of clients or businesses that you align yourselves with. So you can do work you like, and you can work with people that you also enjoy. And for a lot of people, when they're disgruntled in their job, one of those things isn't working very well. Do you find, as far as the skills that people could start to offer that particular ones are more in demand right now than others? Yeah. I mean, it depends on what type of business you're looking to support. Um, and we already kind of reviewed some of the popular ones. Some of the ones that you might not think about is like, I think there's a huge opportunity for affiliate management. So there's people that make their money online almost 100% by referring other people's products and services to their audience. So you could be managing the affiliate partners that that online influencer works with and who they promote. Or other people like myself, we have affiliate programs where people will sign up and they will promote our courses and our services and things like that. So it's like a two-sided deal. Um, I think anything to do with the marketing aspects of a business, especially in the digital age, is super helpful whenever a potential client can see a positive ROI or return on investment from hiring somebody that they're going to make more money as a result of whatever activity they're doing on their behalf is also super powerful. And it can be kind of a no brainer for them to invest in. Yeah, I would definitely raise my hand even for this podcast that social media is something that I didn't really engage in for my personal day to day. So also had that similar life cycle to look and see what was out there, look to see what was working for other people and then engage a plan and put it out there. And to the same theme that we're talking about, hey, once I get to a point where I feel like it's a service that I could offer to others, might just do that. Of course, can't help myself. You mentioned podcast production and that's actually absolutely something that uh, I've started to offer through the podcast. So just again, some examples for folks that they shouldn't limit themselves in what they think is marketable or not. I mean, the term, it's almost like taking the gig economy that you hear about and then looking inward to figure out what all you could 
put out on the table as part of that gig economy. Yeah. And you only need to choose a couple of things to get started and you don't have to be married to them for all of time. So let's say that you start out doing, you know, some social media management and customer service. Well, that might be just your start into working with a few different clients. And then guess what? They have all of these other needs, um, that they need to fill in order to continue to do their business. Because here's the thing with a small business owner or an entrepreneur, they are wearing 50 different hats at any period of time and they really shouldn't be. But, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily make sense for them to take on full-time employees to take on all of these things. And that's where contractors or virtual assistants really come in handy is because they can help them with, you know, five or maybe 10 hours of work per week doing different things. But once you've forged a relationship with somebody, the very easiest customer to take on is to sell your current client and other services. And you might not even know how to conduct them, but because your client is just enjoying the working relationship with you, they see how kind of reliable you are and that you're always a go-getter and figuring things out, they're more than happy to train you on whatever those things are so they can free themselves up for a few different reasons. They might need to do more of the things that are unique to them, which is offering the services that they do to their clients or creating new content or whatever. They also might want to just enjoy some more time with their family or maybe, God forbid, they have some hobbies that they would like to sink <laughs> some time into. Well, I think the characteristic that you mentioned that really hits it on the head is when people get in front of a go-getter, somebody that will go get something done, back to the theme of even if it's something you haven't had to do before and a part of the challenge is just learning it, uh, people respond to that, uh, that you don't want somebody that's not energetic, that doesn't hit timelines. Those are right. really big characteristics that it doesn't matter what the task is. That is a lot of what they are buying, I would imagine, when they contract with you. It's not that hard to set yourself apart, unfortunately, in this kind of marketplace. I mean, in our student pool, that is not correct because they all kick some butt. But um, <laughs> I was having a conversation with another kind of online influencer just today, and he was asking for kind of some material to basically speak into the fact that you need to be reliable and communicative and how to handle kind of that client communication. And like we'd had this ongoing conversation and it finally dawned on me that this is what his real question was. And the reason it didn't come to me sooner is that I just felt like that was common sense. Like to me, it's all common sense. And we do bring it up within like our training programs and things like that. Um, because there is a stigma out there that freelancers are unreliable or don't deliver work on time or just kind of skip town. Now, I think that's one of those one to 5% scenarios. It's just that, you know, there's always some bad apples for any kind of industry and you only hear about the bad experiences kind of thing. But it's true that like just by having some innate characteristics like being reliable, being a little overly communicative, making sure that the expectations are clear on both ends and that your client understands what you're doing and when you're accomplishing it and checking in when you do have real questions that you can't figure out on your own, it goes a long way. Let me ask you, you mentioned bad apples. And one thing that comes to mind for me is a website like Fiverr. Do you view that service as a detriment to the overall perception of somebody that is being a virtual assistant? Or can it be a compliment if somebody that has a business can also advertise themselves, so to speak, as a contributor or somebody that can be hired through, again, a website like Fiverr? Yeah, I think that's 
that's a great um, question. And, you know, I think Fiverr, Upwork, people per hour, like they're all kind of lumped into similar marketplaces for skills. And I think the thing that I don't really enjoy about them, and I was on Elance before it transitioned into Upwork. But to me, I have the ability and the drive to just go out there and market myself and get in front of the right people and figure out how to land clients. So I think that's kind of the value proposition of those platforms that you could set up a profile and that you'll be booked. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you lose some money in that deal because they're charging some sort of fee on their end in order to offer that service. And it's not typically going to be assessed to the client that's doing the hiring. It's being assessed to you as the, the virtual assistant or the service provider. I think the term virtual assistant overall kind of gets a little bit of a, a bad rap. And I think a lot of people might think of cheap overseas labor. Personally, I think of it being this revolution. So if you look back in history, once again, you know, we had a time where we were all, and mainly men, because women were doing their thing at that point, um, offering whatever services to one another. They would barter, they would sell it for for money, um, but they all had the thing that they did and they were specialized. So if you think of like your um, blacksmith and the baker and the candlestick maker or whatever, right? And then we went into more of like the industrial revolution times and assembly lines and nine to five work. And it was more of plugging a person into a thing rather than being a real specialized individual. And then I think uh, we're coming out of that a little bit where people realize that they do have skills that are valuable or they can learn how to do things. And we're in this kind of age of the knowledge worker, which I think his name was Peter Drucker kind of predicted back in the 1960s. And that the internet now has allowed us this amazing opportunity where we're not caught in this like 50 mile radius of where we live for our opportunities of where we work and who we work with. I think people feel more empowered now to become self-employed. And if you look at the current period that we're going through, if you only have one employer, all of your eggs are in that one basket. There's nothing wrong to being a corporate employee or having a nine to five. Um, not everybody is set out or supposed to be an entrepreneur or a small business owner, but there are a lot of benefits on the other side of the fence. And that includes flexibility and freedom and choice, which I think is important to a lot of people. So going back to your question, I mean, I don't think that they're bad. I think that sometimes people think that that's the only way to find work. And I would challenge that mindset because I don't think it's true at all. And sometimes like you think then that you're limited to that and you're limited to maybe the pricing structure that's acceptable there and that you need to figure out what is the value of the services that, that you're offering and what is the value to the clients who is hiring you to do them. And I think the other thing that you have to kind of keep in mind too is I do truly believe there are talented people all over the world. There's just different places that have uh, different costs of living. So to live over in the Philippines, you can make 3 to $5 an hour and it's a livable wage. Here in Minnesota, you can't do that so much. And then if you go to places like California, you really can't do that, right? So I think there needs to be a little bit of an equation on not only what your services are worth, but also like, what do you need to make as far as where this would be a fair exchange of value to you? And so it's not like a cut and dry, I guess, calculation. Um, I can speak to rates a little bit though, if that's helpful. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, so these are my personal opinions, but they're based on my own experience as well as the experience of hundreds and thousands of students that I've encountered. And 
I personally think that I'm here in the U.S. I mentioned Minnesota. So domestically that we can't uh, take anything less than $20 an hour. And that's even not having a ton of skills. So that would be kind of more of your general admin virtual assistant. And the reason being is as a self-employed individual, you're responsible for all of the things when it comes to uh, both the employee and the employer side of taxes. You're responsible for your own benefits if you choose to have a retirement plan or health care, if your spouse doesn't cover that, which is the situation that we're in. We're actually looking at health care right now for a corporate um, policy for two families to cover a high deductible plan. It's like $35,000 yeah. a year. Yeah. Insane. So anyways, if you don't have health insurance, you kind of need it and you have to build that into your rates as well. Um, you know, you should be allowed to take time off. And so you kind of need to build that into your rates as well as far as vacation and things like that. So anything under $20 an hour is just not a livable wage. I see people charging on the newer end of jumping into this business, somewhere between $20 and $40 an hour. The higher you creep up, the more specialized you're getting. Um, as a virtual assistant, I was making over $100 an hour on average at the end or kind of peak of when I was offering services. And a big part of that is because I wasn't charging hourly. Instead, I had very specific um, services and a value proposition to the clients that I was working with. And it really doesn't matter how long it takes me to get the work done. It matters the output and what that means to the client. And that honestly was probably... My biggest kind of gripe, if I had one, about being in a nine-to-five is if I could complete my work in three hours, why do I have to sit there for eight? Actually, part of my day job is in data and analytics. So that very much can apply depending on the area you're in and how technical. I always joke and say, hey, if I figure a way to automate my job, whatever that would be, especially in the data world. Yeah. That shouldn't necessarily be a detriment that then you get dumped on a bunch of other work <laughs> because you found a way to be efficient. Now, to your point, um, in that same model, if you get the more work and you can still be efficient with it, well, then you see more money coming in because you're completing jobs and each job equals an amount of money. Depending on the setup for your day job, it may not be set up that way, which could be a disincentive to get better and churn out work faster. So that does definitely make sense that at some point, if you can get to a pay model that is per project rather than per hour, all the better because it's sort of a, a good incentive for you as well as your clients that you can pump out more <laughs> for them. Right. And uh, so they're getting faster work and you're seeing more money as opposed to if you're not doing things the right way, let's say <laughs> you extend out the amount of hours that it takes to do something <laughs> because you're getting paid hourly, right. which is a disincentive, of course, for uh, the client that you're serving. Yeah, we're assuming that you're a legit person in all these right. scenarios that we're talking about. But for anybody <laughs> yeah. that's tuning in that wants to learn more about that, it's called value-based value pricing. So that's a really great thing for you to check out. And personally, like it's good to know how many hours you're working, especially as a business owner so that you can um, calculate your internal metrics. So you know kind of what an hour is worth to you and your business so that you can kind of set your rates and your goals and things like that around that. With your own business and going through healthcare benefits, your retirement benefits, and of course there is the scariness of having the revenue generated to have the viable business, but on the back end, 
if you are able to dig into what options are available to you as a company as opposed to an individual, there's a lot of options out there. Uh, for example, we do on this show a, a number of personal finance episodes. And of course, there's limits to a 401k, for example, when you are an individual. But if you're the employer, you actually can set the amount that gets contributed as the employer, which for those that don't know, are higher ceilings than as the individual employee. Um, so I actually get kind of excited about that part of it even as well, where some people <laughs> might say, oh my gosh, I don't want to have to do that. <laughs> I'm kind of an oddball that is like, yes, even more control. Well, and hopefully I didn't freak anybody out about those insurance rates because that's, again, as a corporation. And the reason we're looking at a plan sure. like that is uh, because it would be 100% deductible to us. And we could go out right now. We're on a Liberty HealthShare. So it's a Christian HealthShare exchange. And it costs us like $500 a month. Uh, and it worked for a long period of time, but it's not what we want to work for us in the future. And so we're just investigating our options now that we're further along on this journey. But the other thing we didn't talk much about is it's amazing all the tax deductions that you can take. So if you enroll mm -hmm. in like one of our online courses, you can write that off against your income. And we just had this really fun challenge on our Facebook page for our podcast production school brand. And this past weekend, we challenged people to walk around in their home because most people are working from home right now, or you might be furloughed. Either way, you're probably not in your day job unless you're an essential employee. And um, figure out like where could you carve out your own little home office. And it doesn't have to be the four walls of a room. It can literally be a couple foot by couple foot space. But you can write off a portion of your home as a home and office and deduct that on your taxes. You can write off a portion of your internet and your cell phone. And all of these are only if you're self-employed. So the next time you buy a new computer or cell phone, like there's a lot of benefits that come to being self-employed and, and that flexibility and freedom. I don't feel like we've really talked about that part at all, but I mentioned that we go down to South Padre Island, Texas every year. This was our fifth year. So we started doing it um, just as I was starting doing this full time. And again, my husband didn't have a, a regular job either because he was managing the household and the kids. And um, that's just been such a benefit to us of being together as a family. And when we first started going down there, the kids weren't in school, so it wasn't a big deal at all. And I could work from anywhere. So as long as I had reliable enough internet, I was good to go. And we live in Minnesota, so it's kind of <laughs> cold here, especially in the winter. And it can kind of stretch out to six months. So being down there for, for two months meant we got to be outside and kind of live in this open air environment and go to the beach and swim in the pool. Like our kids are little fish. It's amazing. And now we continue that trend. We just uh, decide to unenroll them from public school for a couple of months. And so far, so good. That is a great point as far as the flexibility is concerned. And again, we focus a lot on travel in our episodes uh, and as a matter of fact, I just had a travel agency consultant on from Australia, and she pointed out a couple different times that mandatory minimum for Australia is five weeks as opposed to U.S. globally. Let's face it. We have a bit of a reputation of being workaholics, and eh, if you're getting two weeks, you're probably doing pretty good. So absolutely the flexibility you get. And if you take those two weeks, right? So a lot of people, we were having this conversation the other day, they feel guilty about taking any time off. So their employer provides it, but they feel like they're letting down kind of their coworkers or taking away from them or their boss would feel like they're, um, 
I don't know, not contributing like they should be if they actually take and enjoy that time. It's it's kind of a sick view, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yes. Uh, and I think at some point, again, with what we're facing right now, maybe that'll be the time that the U.S. faces the reality of how we view work, feeling guilty about taking a vacation. but Well, it kind of ruins your vacation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're wondering what you're missing. I've even read that some people are afraid to leave because they think their employer will realize a way to get on without them. (laughs) And then that'll be the thing that causes them to get their pink slip, which of course is like, man, if you think that, there's something else going on <laughs> with your overall relationship. Right. And then, and in the meantime, they're overworked and right. they're stressed and obviously they're making up situations right. in their mind. But you know, that's the part that I love probably about my business. Most of all is that there's not this clear separation between work and life, um, which can be a bad thing because I've tended to maybe overwork sometimes in the past because there's always a project that I can start or complete, but uh, it's a lot more fluid, you know, so there's, there's not a commute. So that's time saved. Um, and I can really dig in in certain seasons if we have a product launch or something like that. And then when we're in Texas, like I totally reduce my workload so that I can be present uh, and in tune with my family. And so that ebbs and flows of life, being able to flex your business or your work around your family for me is like the number one perk. Well, and reiterating, even when you're not necessarily taking official time off. Now, like you say, in in your business, you are the business. So there isn't really a difference between time off or not. Just did you budget appropriately and making sure your family is a priority, but you could still be working on a project or a thing from anywhere. uh, And the family's on some amount of vacation and maybe you're putting in a certain amount of time and then joining after and so on. So flexibility, I think is absolutely huge and is absolutely something that people should keep in mind. I read not that long ago that in a survey, flexibility in a job was one of the biggest like top characteristics for millennials right that's what they're looking for mm -hmm. even above having the highest you got it yeah and also that people Mm -hmm. were more apt to stay in their job if they viewed their current employer as being flexible with their hours and with their other responsibilities that they had so it is absolutely huge and i think more and more you're starting to read and see that it is uh, a commodity not to be undervalued yeah and i think it goes back to what i said earlier it's not like being employed versus being self-employed. And there has to be this big debate or fight over one another. It's figuring out what you want for your life and just knowing that you do have some choice. And then again, you can do work that you love. I mean, you're not going to love it every day, all day, but the majority of what you're doing, you can play to your strengths. And then the thing that I like to talk about, at least recently, is that you know you have that choice in who you take on as clients, just like they have the choice in hiring you. But what better way to build your business than to go after some of the companies and the organizations that you can really stand behind that maybe you're a customer of already, right? There's a ton of like small business products within my sphere of where I'm sitting right now. I don't know if that's true for you as well. But if you were spent your whole day helping them to succeed and to increase kind of their client base and to maybe even change lives, like wouldn't that be kind of fulfilling no matter what role you played? Yes. And also another characteristic of the U.S. of being very much service-based, sometimes I think not being able to point to a finished product, which 
depending on the type of industry you work in, it is hard to point to that, <laughs> you know, whatever it may be, uh, can be a bit of a detriment as opposed to if it's your business. You can say, here's the thing that I built up. Here is the projects that I completed. Uh, it's right here. You can use it both for continuing to build the business as well as something to just be proud of. <laughs> right. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit more about cost. So we hit the tax write-offs and some of just owning a business. What would you say are the startup costs for building your virtual business? I think that is the best news of the day. Um, if you were to compare it to our traditional brick and mortar counterparts, it's like non-existent, right? So I feel bad for the hospitality and the restaurant industry right now because they're getting crushed more right. than anybody else by what's going on with COVID. One thing that you know I've had a conversation with a couple of people about recently is why do us as business owners, and I'm not saying every business, but why is it a standard that a lot of businesses don't have a cash reserve? Why don't they have the three to six months that Dave, Ram Dave Ramsey encourages the rest of the world to have personally? So that's one thing to kind of consider as you start a business is I think it's important to um, kind of bank some of that income as you are moving forward to have a safety net for your business as well as for your personal situation. Um, but going back to kind of the restaurant industry and brick and mortar, like, I don't know if what is a statistic, like either a third or two thirds of restaurants fail in their first three years. Like it's just crazy. And when you think about the costs that go into starting a restaurant, typically you're leasing a building. If you're not buying it, um, you're rehabbing the entire inside. There's all of the startup costs that come with furnishing it. So where do people actually sit down to eat, having a bar plates, all of the cooking utensils and things like that, a point of sale system. I mean, those alone can cost, I think tens of thousands of dollars, which is insane. Um, and then you have the overhead of staff and uh, the produce, the actual cooking materials and things like that. And their margins are quite low in comparison. So you're looking at tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to start a business like that. Same thing with a retail brick and mortar store where you're selling goods. So you're going to have to, again, have a physical space that's outfitted and ready for customers to come. And then you have whatever your overhead costs are for staff and to fill the shelves with whatever products you're selling. So both of those can be kind of expensive ways to start a business. On the other hand, if you're looking at offering services virtually, you're looking at making sure that you have a functional computer. Um, so a desktop or a laptop, it really doesn't matter. I started my business on the couch at 4.30 in the morning, sitting in my basement, so I didn't wake anybody up. And I had my trusty old laptop that was probably at least five years old. And we had internet access. And thank God our internet is better than it was then because it wasn't that great. <laughs> but it worked enough to get started. Um, and then, you know, everything that you use application-wise these days is going to be cloud-based. So it actually doesn't matter the computer that you use. You're just going to log in with whatever your credentials are. And there are a ton of tools that you can started, get started using for free. So you should probably have some sort of email associated with your business. Uh, Google is amazing. They have Gmail and then they have the entire Google tool suite. So not only do they have Gmail, they have a digital calendar that you can use. They have all of the Microsoft suite products, but in a Google form. So you have your Google Sheets, which are spreadsheets, your Google Docs, which is like Microsoft Word. You have a PowerPoint option as well as like a, a form option um, as well. And 
any other tools that are specific to the client work that you're going to do are probably going to be subscriptions that they're paying for. And you're just logging into their tools on their behalf. So let's say that you're helping them to send out email marketing campaigns via email. Well, they're going to have what's called an ESP, an email service provider for their business that they use and already pay for. You're just logging in and doing work on their behalf on their tools or platform. When it comes to invoicing, there's ways that you can get started doing that for free. PayPal is a great first way to start and send an invoice. Some people want to do like a doc or a spreadsheet. I wouldn't because they're not super easy to pay. And if you want to do anything right for your business, it's making your invoices as easy to pay (laughs) as possible because you'll get paid so much faster. I just gave my CPA firm this advice today because I had to call and pay an invoice for my tax return via credit card over the phone. And I'm like, y'all need to get with the times. Right. (laughs) Uh, And I told her that I go, you know, you'll get paid faster if you just let me do it online. Right. And I was lighthearted and everything, but I was actually very truthful (laughs) in that statement. So some sort of invoicing is great. PayPal will take um, like a 3% fee in order to collect payments. um, And Stripe is an alternative that you can use as well as some other invoicing platforms. Um, QuickBooks is great though. So you can not only send QuickBooks uh, invoices with QuickBooks online, but you can also track your income and your expenses so that you're uh, making sure that you know the financials for your business when it comes to tax time. You know your profitability and you can calculate your business profitability so you know how much taxes that you're owing. So there's not like a lot of startup expenses. Um, A lot of people will build in like an online course because they have no idea what they're doing to get started. And it's a lot easier most times to follow a step-by-step plan from somebody that's done it and trained up, you know, thousands of other students. So um, we offer training and that way we have kind of a more, uh, it's our flagship product called 30 Days or Less to Virtual Assistant Success. So if you've never had your own business before, you've never worked online, that's the perfect place for you to get started because it fills in a lot of these different blanks. And then we have some more skill-specific courses as well. Like I mentioned, the podcast production school or become a Pinterest VA today. And and those options are great because not only are you learning how to start a business as quickly and easy as possible, but we're actually teaching you very hard skills so that you can get closer to that level of specialization and charging higher rates to clients that are really in need of these specific services. You're speaking my language, talking about using G Suite in place of, let's say, paying for Microsoft Office license, which you don't have to do because you've got all the exact same tools that are free and other free things out there. Well, and they're like shareable too. So you and your client can work on the same document and edit it in real time versus sending like a new Google or new word doc back and forth a million times. And um, they just need to have a, a Google suite account too, in order to access that. But even if they don't, they can utilize pages or um, word or whatever to open the documents that you're sharing with them as well. Yeah. And comparing that to the podcast world, I was in rock bands since I was in high school and the equipment to be able to record and edit was really, really expensive and the mm. hardware was super expensive. And as I've gotten into the podcasting world, when I'll see the free options for sound editing that right. are available and other just really good microphones that are also not expensive at all, mm-hmm. but then you'll still see forums of people saying, oh, you got to buy this six, seven, eight hundred dollar heart piece of hardware and this other thing. And I'm thinking, no, no, you really don't to get started. So I, I like that you brought that up, that there are definitely 
things that people may be wired to think they have to shell out money for, but there are certainly alternatives when you're getting started. Well, and you should be kind of bootstrapping, right? Like um, you're starting a services-based business for a few reasons. One, so you don't have a high overhead. And two, so you can get started up and running right away with you know skills that you already have at your disposal. So, I mean, that's where I, I'm a bootstrapper at heart. Obviously, I was um, in, finance, in personal finance as well. So it just kind of makes sense that the solutions that we would recommend would be as... Uh, budget-friendly as possible. In the podcast production school, we train on Audacity. That's an open source, absolutely free platform. And yeah, there's other options that you can graduate to over time, but not starting with them makes a lot of sense because you might as well just start with what works at the level that you're at and what, again, fits your budget, which free usually does. I think one other thing that people would maybe wonder is what does their availability need to be? So, for example, if I'm starting part-time and I'm working for a client that works during 9 to 5, are they going to be expecting that I'm also available 9 to 5? Yeah, most work isn't time-sensitive, or at least the things that I sought out for that reason, because I started my gig on the side of a full-time job. And so I didn't want to have the conversation on an ongoing basis about, oh, well, I can't talk here because I'm working full-time. Like That's none of their business, really, um, if it's not a role that isn't time-sensitive. So I think a lot of people think that they need to be available uh, for meetings or via phone or whatever at the drop of a hat. And that's not true. Um, 24 to 48 business hours is typically appropriate timing to get back to somebody. If you are prospecting and actively trying to get hired, I would get back to them sooner than later. But people still respect the fact that weekends exist. So there's no reason to work all weekend. Although it's also acceptable for you to email somebody over the weekend. And it just it really doesn't matter based on kind of the technology advances that we have. So for the most part, um, even when I did customer service, I would log in twice a day, the beginning and the end of the workday. And that was totally acceptable. And I set that expectation with the clients that I was working with. And it makes sense too, because you're clearing it out from whatever happened over the course of the, the night. And then you give some time to be able to have ongoing conversations with people and you close out kind of the traditional workday with that work. Um, but most things really aren't super time sensitive, uh, which allows you to be able to work at kind of the hours that are convenient for you. So some people are looking to earn extra income and they still have a day job and they don't have any uh, goal of leaving that behind. They just want to be able to earn some extra income, right? And other people maybe have other responsibilities. So maybe you're a stay-at-home parent and you're looking to add some income into your household, or maybe you're caring for, you know, an aging parent yourself. Um, that's another situation. And then there's a group of other people that are looking to do this during the day. That's the funniest thing. If you talk to people that have left their day jobs and they're doing their thing full time, the majority keep like banker's hours, which is your nine to five, because they end up kind of operating around either their spouse, their kids, or people in their sphere of influences schedules. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. You got to <laughs> keep the schedule with the people that you're servicing, <laughs> which would be that typical nine to five that we've been talking about. So before I let you go, uh, we've touched a little bit on what's going on with the COVID lockdowns. Uh, and it seems to me that, again, the virtual business model should probably really gain steam as we figure out what the new normal is going to look like. Is that how you see it? Or what do you think that that's going to look like as we start to see how it develops 
after the current lockdowns. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, sadness going on in the world. Obviously, there are very sick people and many that have passed. So people are dealing with loss and and we need to acknowledge that um, we're not through it yet. And I'm not sure that we're even through the worst of it at this point. I'm praying that that's definitely the case. But I think it is creating a lot of space in people's lives because we're, we aren't as busy as we were before. We're not allowed to be as busy as we were before. So we have extra challenges like having littles, little kids around all of the time. Um, we have extra challenges like the internet not working as right. well as it normally does because everybody's online all <laughs> of the time. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that it gives the people some space to be able to think as well and think about their lives and what is... What do they want their lives to ideally look like? And so for average folks, they may, again, be experiencing that furlough, that being laid off. Um, And so they're thinking about, hey, is this really what I want to go back to? Is this something that I enjoy or do I want to pivot? And then there's business owners that are thinking about their businesses. And they're like, okay, if I'm not just trying to survive here, what should I do next to make my business more enjoyable or to take it to the next level? And so one of the common challenges for a lot of business owners is they're too busy to hire help. They need the help, but they're too busy to take the time to find the right person, which includes like interviewing typically a few different people. And they're too busy to interview them and to hire them and to onboard them and to train them there is a fair amount that goes into it, even if you're hiring somebody that has specific skills, your business is still your business and everybody that hasn't worked with you before needs to learn it, right? So that's kind of cool is they finally have some time to think about that and to maybe make some hiring decisions. And one of the cool things about our communities that go alongside our programs is that we actually do marketing on our students' behalf. So we're not going to build your business for you, but we are actively marketing out there to business owners that we run in the same circles that need some help and they need some good help. And so we put those leads in front of our community and in front of our students. And um, so they're looking at ways that they can change. Those business owners are also looking finally to the future. And they're thinking about, okay, what projects have I been wanting to start for a long time? And that might be like marketing through starting their own podcast or doing some video marketing on YouTube or something else. And they, again, wear so many hats and that's not the thing that they have the level of specialization in. So they're looking to hire somebody to help them to carry it out. Perfect. And if we have listeners that are interested in getting more information or where their journey should start, can you go ahead and give your contact info where maybe people can find you on social media and then anything else maybe that we didn't discuss that would be uh, worth mentioning? Sure. Yeah. So HorkyHandbook.com is our main site. My last name is German. And fun fact, we got to go to Germany. I think it was 2018. I had a client that flew me and my husband out to Prague because they're all remote. And they brought us all into the country of Prague in order to have like a team meetup. It was amazing. And so right next to Prague is Germany. And my husband and I got to got to visit there. And we got to see our last name all over the place, which is kind of rare for us because there's not a lot of Horkies out there. So H-O-R-K-E-Y and then handbook.com. On that page, if you are somebody that's looking to become a virtual assistant, we have some great free resources to help kind of jumpstart your journey. And then if you're a business owner that's tuning in, you can also um, download a free workbook that we have there that makes it as easy as possible to find and hire and onboard a virtual assistant. Very cool. Well, Gina, I appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Uh, Stay safe as we continue through our lockdown and we'll be in touch. 
Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on, Greg, and cheers to you guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit SuburbanFolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to SuburbanFolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to RingMedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G Media.com.